This is the podcast of Redemption Bible Church, where applicational preaching is a distinctive of our church. For more information, log on to redemptionfw.org. Thanks for listening. Good morning. Ah, today we are reading from Genesis chapter 12, verses 10 through 20. Now there was a famine in the land, so Abram went down to Egypt to sojourn there, for the famine was severe in the land. When he was about to enter Egypt, he said to Sarai, his wife, I know that you are a woman, beautiful in appearance, and when the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife, then they will kill me, but they will let you live. Say you are my sister, that it may go well with me because of you, and that my life may be spared for your sake. When Abram entered Egypt, the Egyptians saw that the woman was very beautiful. And when the princes of Pharaoh saw her, they praised her to Pharaoh. And the woman was taken into Pharaoh's house. And for her sake, he dealt well with Abram. And he had sheep, oxen, male donkeys, male servants, female servants, female donkeys, and camels. But the Lord afflicted Pharaoh and his house with great plagues because of Sarai, Abram's wife. So Pharaoh called Abram and said, What is this you have done to me? Why did you not tell me that she was your wife? Why did you say she is my sister? So I took her for my wife. Now then, here is your wife. Take her and go. And Pharaoh gave men orders concerning him. And they sent him away with his wife and all that he had. The word of the Lord. Morning, church. That now before I knock it over later. Ever had a a read on a situation that ended up being completely wrong? Uh, This guy did. This guy's name is uh, Paul Krugman. Paul Krugman is an American economist who in 1998 said this, the growth of the internet will slow drastically. By 2005 or so, it will become clear that the internet's impact on the economy has been no greater than the fax machines. (laughs) Whoops. Uh, That's a pretty epically bad prediction. But it's easy for us to misread situations as humans, isn't it? It's easy for us to to think that we know best and how we should function and actually be operating from the wrong place, from, from bad information, or sometimes even from a lack of faith. We want to believe that we know best. We want to believe that we know how to operate within this world and we don't need anyone else other than ourselves. That's what we want to functionally believe. But it makes us 
It makes us operate from self-reliance instead of God-reliance, from arrogance instead of faith. And after a really strong showing of faith in the first part of chapter 12 in Genesis, this is where we find Abram at the end of this chapter. This is what we're gonna see today as we study this story together. We're gonna see that Abram really lacked faith. After he had just walked through this massive show of faith and followed God faithfully, he really lacks faith in this text. So this is our big idea for the day. Even when I lack faith, God will be faithful. Even when I lack faith, God will be faithful. So as we look at this story first, I just wanna really look at this first thing. What does God do? What does God do? What God does in this text? So look at, look at verse 10. Let your eyes fall back on chapter 12, verse 10 of Genesis. Now there was a famine in the land. So Abram went down to Egypt to sojourn there for the famine was severe in the land. Let's just stop right there. What's amazing here is how quickly this story has changed. We just saw last week that Abram took an incredible step of faith. He followed God's plan and took an almost 800-mile arc to get to Canaan, building altars of worship and thanking God for this promise that God had given him. But then what happens here? There's a famine. Wasn't this where God had led Abram to, to Canaan? Wasn't this the land that God had promised? But then a famine in the land that God had promised, that God had led him to. It was a trial. It was a test. Why? Because Abram had done something massively wrong? No. The text doesn't say anything about Abram's failure. The text says nothing negative about why Abram would find himself in the midst of this trial. <clears throat> in fact, Hebrews 11 commends Abram for his faith. So why a trial? I mean, don't we generally believe that trials happen because somehow I've messed up? because somehow I lack faith, because I did something wrong, so that's why I'm sitting in the midst of this trial. I believe that the reason I got the flat tires because I haven't been very consistent in my devotions this week. I believe that the reason my family got sick is because I keep getting angry at them and it's punishment to me. I mean, can we be in trials because of our sin? Sure, sure, sin has consequence, right? When we choose to sin, we choose to suffer ultimately. When we step outside of what God has said is best, we step into the potential of consequence for our sin. That's true. But I wanna be really, really clear with you this morning. Not all trials are because of our sinful choices. Not all trials are because of our sinful choices. Trials are never punitive. They aren't punishment. They're instructive. Discipline and punishment are different. Punishment of sin has eternal consequence. 
Punishment looks back at what you did and means justice is required for what you did. Discipline looks forward to who God wants you to become, right? So punishment is looking backwards and saying that sin must be punished. But discipline is looking forward and saying, this is who I want him to be. So I'm going to help him walk through this thing. Let me prove it to you. Look at Psalm 103. Or Psalm 130, sorry, Psalm 130, verse 8 says this, The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He will not always chide, nor will he keep his anger forever. And look at verse 10, don't miss this. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. God doesn't deal with us according to our sins, nor does he repay us according to our iniquities. So when we view trials as this punitive thing that God is doing because of what we've done, we're ignoring Psalm 130. Sam Storm says it this way. This is a little bit of a long quote, but hang with it because it's so good. God promises never to repay us for our sins. Why? How? because he's already poured out that judgment and that wrath on his son in our place. Jesus willingly, lovingly, joyfully embraced it on the cross in himself. So that doesn't mean that our sin doesn't have an effect on our relationship with God. The spirit of God still convicts us, but that's not repaying us. We will not be punished eternally for our transgressions. Yes, we are brought to an awareness by the Spirit of ways that we have fallen short, but not for the purpose of using that as the grounds to exclude us from the kingdom of God in the new heaven and the new earth. So there's a massive difference between God's discipline of us when we have wandered in unrepentant sin on the one hand and God's punishment of us for that sin as a way of excluding us from his presence and experiencing his eternal wrath. There's a massive difference between the two. God brings trials to grow our obedience. God brings trials to press us closer to him. Look at Hebrews chapter five, verse seven. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death, and he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, this is Jesus, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. So can suffering always be our fault? Uh, Did Jesus ever sin? Please say no a little more emphatically. No, Jesus did not ever sin. But he learned obedience through suffering. He learned obedience through trials. If Jesus had to learn obedience through suffering, don't you think that might be the case for us? He was fully man. Church, trials are always grace. Trials are always grace. It is God's grace to help us grow. It is God's grace to help us learn obedience. God's grace brings trials into our life so that we can see him more fully. Abram wasn't in a trial because he sinned. 
He was in a trial because God cared about him enough to pursue him, to help him learn, to help him grow, to help him love him better. That's why James can say in James chapter one, verse two, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. God wants to produce something in us. He wants to produce Christ-likeness in us. He wants to draw us to himself in relationships, and trials is a way that he does that. God is pursuing your faith through trials. I can tell you that helping plant this church was one of the most significant trials of my life. It was one of the greatest joys of my life, but it was also one of the greatest trials. When we initially accepted the the position of worship pastor back in 2012, I was paid a grand total of $0 a month. I had a pregnant wife and I just graduated seminary. And my plan, our plan, Jamie and I's plan, was that the church would grow quickly and that we'd be paid full-time probably within the first year. It was gonna be great. We had great plans. And then one year turned into two. And two turned into three. And I was finally paid full-time beginning in August of the third year. That was 2015. And then in December of 2015, our church faced some of the greatest turmoil that it's faced in its history. It was a trial. There were a lot of months where we didn't know how everything was gonna work out. But that trial was so significant to my faith, to the affirmation of my pastoral call, to God working and moving. It was necessary for me to walk through that trial. Sure, we stepped out in faith. And and we knew we were following God's direction, or at least we thought we did. And then famine came. Trial came. But church, I'm here to tell you, God taught me in ways in that trial that I don't think I could have learned other ways. I don't think I would have learned some of the things that I learned had I not walked through that season. He met me, he grew me, he grew my dependence on him, my understanding of him on a personal level. I knew a lot about God here, but that trial really helped deepen a well of actual relationship with him. I don't think that would have happened had I not walked through that. So I can look back at that trial and say, yeah, it was God's grace. It was hard. It was hard, but it was God's grace. Can you look back at the trials that God has walked you through? Do you look at them that way? What what do you believe God was doing in those trials? What do you believe caused those trials? You think it's you? Because church, I gotta tell you, if you think you're the cause of every trial you're walking through, that's pretty prideful. (laughs) It's putting you in the driver's seat of the sovereignty of God. Do we struggle to trust God in trials? It's hard. God brings them. Abram had taken the biggest step of faith in his life, and the very next thing God did was say, "Eh, here's a trial. What does God do? 
He brings trials to help us grow in obedience and trust of him. That's what God does. So let's continue on in the story and look at what we do. What do we do? What does Abram do in this story? Look back at verse 11. Let's read, uh, starting in verse 11. When he, Abram, was about to enter Egypt, he said to Sarai, his wife, I know that you are a woman beautiful in appearance. And when the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife. Then they will kill me, but they will let you live. Say you are my sister, that it may go well with me because of you and that my life may be spared for your sake. When Abram entered Egypt, the Egyptians saw that the woman was very beautiful. And when the princes of Pharaoh saw her, they praised her to Pharaoh and the woman was taken into Pharaoh's house. And for her sake, he dealt well with Abram and he had sheep, oxen, male donkeys, male servants, female servants, female donkeys, and camels. The trial comes, and what does Abram do? He stops, and he asks God what he should do, and he waits for God to respond before he goes, right? Uh, no, no. Okay, so he, he trusts that God had led him to Canaan, so he waits and trusts that God will provide. Mm, nope, not that one either. No, he goes to Egypt, the prevailing wisdom of the day was that Egypt was far more plentiful than the other places. It was the fertile Nile Valley. In fact, Egyptian history tells us, it records that sojourners came seeking food often from other places. It was part of their history. It's what you did if you were in that region. So famine comes and Abram follows conventional wisdom to leave the land and go to Egypt, and we never see him consult God. At least we don't see it in the text. But then it gets even worse. He crafts a plan to deceive the Egyptians. Sarai, his wife, is said to have been very beautiful. She was about 65 at the time. So... But the text nonetheless says she was very beautiful. The standard of beauty was different in that day. And obviously the Egyptians affirmed that as she came in. But, but look at verse 12. What, what does Abram say? And when the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife, then they will kill me. That's Abram's fear. He fears for his life. Why? I mean, I mean, sure, it was common practice of the day. From a human perspective, he was right to think that they would kill him and take his wife. But church, what had God just literally audibly told him in verse 2 of chapter 12? Look back there. Let your eyes fall on it. And I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. He was going to be a great nation. Question for you, could he have been a great nation if he was dead and had no kids? But church, this, this is what we do, right? We forget. We forget. God had promised Abram something, and he forgot that promise. At least functionally, he forgot it. He did not operate out of what he knew. He operated out of fear. 
And fear in this sense is when we're anticipating danger and that impacts how we think, act, and feel. We anticipate danger and it impacts how we think, act, and feel. Abram was anticipating danger and so he thinks he needs to craft a plan that clearly is outside of what God would have for him. How do we know that? Because he has to lie to enact it. Abram was acting from fear, not from faith. And he was fearful because he forgot the promise of God. He forgot who God was. He forgot that God would accomplish his purpose. Kent Hughes said this, Abram stumbled because when testing came, he forgot God. He did not disbelieve in God. He forgot how great God is. And forgetting God, he resorted to his own devices, his stealth and manipulation. And then his world graciously fell in. But this was allowed by the goodness of God because God had greater things for Abram to do. One of our kids, who I will leave nameless to protect the guilty, uh, used to be irrationally, like super irrationally afraid of rain and wind. They studied tornadoes in school, and so they began to believe that any time a drop of rain fell from the sky, that there was going to be a tornado that came along with it. So every night that there would be rain or any little bit of winds, you'd hear this little knock on the door, and the, I'm scared. But the reality is, well, I can say confidently every time at this point that that little knock came, they were actually safe in our house with nothing to fear. 95% of those times, they were for sure just safe in our house with nothing to fear. It was just rain, maybe a little wind. But they didn't think that. They weren't operating that way because fear makes us irrational. Fear doesn't help us operate in the realm of reality. Fear makes us act in ways we shouldn't, think in ways we shouldn't, and ultimately live in ways that we shouldn't. Fear in this sense of the word fear comes from forgetting. It comes from forgetting who is really in control. It comes from forgetting that God has it in his control. Fear makes us not obey his word. Fear makes us fail to do what God has called us to do because we forget that what he has for us is what is best for us. What's fear preventing you from? Maybe it's fear of an outcome. Maybe it's the fear of what people think or what they might do could be fear of a, a situation that you just want to avoid because you're not sure what might happen. Then the question you need to ask yourself is, what are you forgetting about God that is letting that fear creep in? Church, this is what we do. We forget. And then this, we figure it out. We try to figure it out. What, what's Abram doing here? He's scared because he forgot about God's promise, so he goes into figure-it-out mode. 
Conventional wisdom says I should go to Egypt, so I go to Egypt. My understanding of Egypt says they will murder me and take my wife, so now she's my sister, not my wife. My plan, my strength, my wisdom, me, 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 me. I got this. I'm gonna figure this thing out. I'm gonna make this happen. But where's God in Abram's plan? Nowhere. I can say that confidently that he has stepped outside of God's plan. Why? Because he had to sin to craft his plan. God's not going to make us operate in such a way that we have to sin. This wasn't God's plan for Abram. God's plan was for Abram to be in Canaan. But he got scared, he got worried. He didn't trust God would do it the way he thought it needed done. So he went into figure it out mode. I've got that gear. Way too much I've got that gear. In fact, three weeks ago, I was here on Sunday morning, set up for the worship team early like I usually do. I turned on the sound system and the projectors and was going along my way and then all of a sudden I hear a boom, like a gunshot going off in the worship center. And at first I had really no idea what in the world had happened. Um, and then I saw, looked up and saw that the screen was blank and the projector was off. So what did I do? I went into get it done mode instantly. I grabbed a ladder, got up to the projector, found a projector bulb exploded into about 10,000 pieces inside the projector. It was toast, big time toast. So I started talking about, okay, we're gonna have to have song sheets this morning. We're gonna have to, we gotta work this problem. I'm running hard and fast, hard and fast, hard and fast. But you know what I never did? I didn't stop and pray. I didn't remember God. I didn't stop and ask God to help. I didn't get into trust God mode. I got into trust Adam mode. I got into, I'm gonna get this thing done. And I'm not saying there isn't a time to get things done. God calls us to some things. But the reality is, where do we start and where do we end? Do I stop and pause and ask for God's help and then at the end, graciously thank him for the wisdom that may have been provided along the way? Or do I go into get it done mode and pat myself on the back when we knock it out of the park? Where's God in our get it done is he even there? Or do we just default to our own strength? Church, we gotta stop and ask him for his strength. What Abram does here is I don't like this situation. I'm gonna go out, I'm gonna figure out my own plan, I'm gonna figure this thing out and if you look back at your week, I guarantee you have situation after situation where you did the exact same thing. We are way too convinced that our own abilities can get us out of stuff. Our self-reliance is off the charts. Our pride works in overdrive as we look at things and act as if we don't actually need God. Because in our hearts, we have elevated our own ability. We have grown to believe we can function in moments without God. 
But here's the reality, church. Colossians 1, 17. And he, Jesus, is before all things, and in him all things hold together. In him all things hold together. If Jesus took his mind off of this world for a fraction of a second, it would fly into disarray. It would fall apart. You slept last night and nothing changed. But we live exactly the opposite. We act like God needs us to figure it out for this world to run. But he's holding it together. We forget. We get into figure it out mode. And ultimately, we fail. What happens to Abram in this? He fails. Why does he fail? Because his plan failed to account for a very significant detail, Pharaoh. See, his plan was actually pretty good from a human perspective. He was going to set the bridal price of the day for Sarai so high that no regular Egyptian was going to be able to pay it. He was gonna drive a really hard bargain, so to, say, so to speak. But Pharaoh... Because Pharaoh does what he wants, because he rules the land. See, Abram couldn't account for everything because he was finite. He couldn't see the whole picture. He couldn't anticipate everything that would happen, and so he failed because he didn't trust, because he relied on his own strength, and he messed up. He messed up so bad that his wife ends up in Pharaoh's harem. Well done. But before we go bashing Abram, isn't this what we do? We act like we know. We act like we aren't flawed, like we aren't finite. And we screw things up because we try to figure it out on our own because we forget who's really in charge, who is really the one holding it together. We often make it worse by trying to figure it out in our own strength instead of actually pressing into the Lord and being with him and waiting on him to work and move. This is what we do. God brings trials. We get into default mode but look at the end of the passage. Let's look at how God works. How God works. Look at verse 17. But the Lord afflicted Pharaoh and his house with great plagues because of Sarai, Abram's wife. So Pharaoh called Abram and said, what is this you have done to me? What did you not tell me that she was your wife? Why did you say she is my sister so that I took her for my wife? Now then, here is your wife. Take her and go. And Pharaoh gave men orders concerning him and they sent him away with his wife and all that he had. What happens? God intervenes. The Lord brings plagues. 
He lets Pharaoh know something isn't right here. God steps in. God says, okay, Abram, I made you a promise. You might be acting like a jack wagon here, but you will not screw up my plan. I've been on this plan from the beginning and you aren't gonna stop it. And this is what the plan has always been about. Look at Galatians 3.16. Now the promises were made to Abram and to his offspring. It does not say into offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one and to your offspring who is Christ. This promise to Abram was always going to be fulfilled in Jesus. Jesus was always the promise. Abram's line may have been the vehicle to Jesus, but it was always about Jesus. And church, that's really good news because here is the reality. Your faithlessness can never outdo God's faithfulness. Your faithlessness can never outdo God's faithfulness. Even when I lack faith, God is faithful. When I struggle with fear, when I struggle with self-reliance, when I fail, God is still going to get done what he wants to get done. He proved it in the offspring, Jesus. Jesus is always stronger. He is always better. God is always faithful, church. Cling to him. Run to him. He is pursuing you even in the midst of trials. Rest in his goodness. God's plan of redemption through his son, Jesus, has shown you he was faithful. He is faithful and he will be faithful. Trust him. Remember him. Press in to him. He is working. He will be faithful. Jesus is always faithful to us, even when we are unfaithful to him. What a joy that truth should bring to our hearts. How that should press us to him Press us away from this reliance on self and send us running full force to Jesus, the only one who is actually holding things together. So church, let's run there. Let's look to ourselves less. Let's look to Jesus more. Let's press into him because he is faithful even when we are not. Let's pray to that end. God, I am so grateful for the truth of the message of the cross, the truth of the message of the gospel, that Jesus pursued me in my sin by taking on the punishment for my sin that I deserved, he took it on himself and he beat it 
by dying a brutal death and then rising victorious over the grave. If that doesn't prove his faithfulness to me, I don't know what will. And yet too often in the moment by moments, I try to muscle it. Try to run to my own strength. I struggle with fear and doubt and worry. But you're gonna accomplish your plan. You're gonna do what only you can do. I can rest in your sovereign hand, moving and orchestrating the events of my life in just the right way. So God, would you just help us trust? Help us see Jesus more than we see ourselves. Look to him, look to his faithfulness and try, instead of trying to rely on our own strength, let's just make much of Jesus in our hearts. Stir that in us, in the moment by moments. Help us run to you, seek you, seek your face more than our own strength. It's in the precious name of Jesus we pray, amen. Would you stand as we sing together?
This is one of those sermons that I don't want to just walk away from and walk out the door. I think we need some time to pray, to receive it in prayer. And I want to kind of lead us to receive this in prayer as we just consider what God would have us do with a message like this. So let's just start with this. Take a moment, if you would, and I want you just to pray to God. I want you to look back on your life and every time you blamed a trial on you instead of recognize God's grace in the trial. Maybe you can just take a minute and say, God, forgive me for blaming things on myself. And really, it was only your hand and your grace that was trying to teach me. Take a minute and just receive that in prayer to the Lord. it's important that we look back in our life and we recognize those times of trial and what they bring to the surface. And maybe you have found yourself fearing and that fear has led you to forget who God is and what God has done for you, which has led you to try to figure it out on your own because ultimately you didn't trust him to do it. And that, for that to only end in failure. Maybe again, we need a time of confession to say, God, I've done that. Forgive me for that. Would you take a moment right now and just confess that to the Lord?
I know I can look back even through the trials, even through my own failures in the trials, to see the incredible faithfulness and goodness of God. Adam just reminded us that God's plan of redemption proves that he was always faithful, is still faithful, and forever will be faithful. And if we ever doubt that, we can just look to Jesus. Take a moment now and just praise God that even in our failure, even when we have fallen short, he has remained faithful to us. Take a minute and just rejoice in your heart as you pray a prayer of thanksgiving to him for his faithfulness. Father, where would I be without you? Where would I be without you? I shudder to think about my life if I had lived it without your faithfulness in it. That through it all, you had a plan for me. And through it all, you have directed me, guided me when I've messed up. You've forgiven me. And Jesus is there, has been there, will forever be present. And I can sit here today, Father, with full confidence that whatever comes in my future, whatever is down the road, you will be faithful. Father, encourage our hearts in that today and let us bolster a newness to trust you more and to live that life of faith as one standing on the foundation of your faithfulness. Father, we thank you for this passage. We thank you for the story. We thank you for this message. Father, we pray that we would live it this week for your glory in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you so much for that time, Redemption. You are loved. Thank you.